hello. Across the silent void of an unknown future, a voice rings out as dry and cold as ancient bones. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic and hologram, and you're listening to Cinema Limbo. Tonight's feature is the science fiction drama THX 1138, the 1971 directing debut of George Lucas, and my guest once again is Chris Arnsby, my fellow cineast and connoisseur. You join us one wintry evening in Chris's house, and I've taken my jumper off. Chris, hello. Hello. <laughs> now, I chose THX 1138 for a very specific reason uh, to cover this early in uh, the run of cinema Limbo, and that's because uh, of the upcoming release of the Peanuts film oh yes yes um, it's the world's of really looking forward to this new launch of uh, the adventures of Snoopy and Charlie Brown um, yeah JJ Abrams uh, has got a real crack team uh, oh I know yeah yeah a new um, generation of uh, adventures yeah the CGI recreation of Needles where Snoopy's cousin Spike comes from is just going to be astonishing yeah, um, I'm really looking forward to it. I think hmm. people say it's going to be the biggest film of all time. Um, we're joking, of course. Yes, I mean. um, yes. I, I mean, I'm really looking forward to the Force Awakens. I, it's so far it looks exactly the way Star Wars has always looked when I think about it, rather than the way it actually did. This is the point where I'm going to sound like a grumpy old nerd because <laughs> I, I'm out. I remember. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I came out of. Revenge of the Sith, uh-huh. Return of the Revenge of the Sith, and I just—I genuinely remember coming out, and it was like a weight had been lifted. And I just remember standing there thinking, "I will never need to give George Lucas any money ever again." You don't now. I know, but there's part of me that just doesn't want to get back on that horse. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure it'll be fine. I mean, the Star Trek reboot was very, very good, very competent. Can't say the same thing about the second film, particularly. And I'm sure it'll be great, and I'm sure people will really enjoy it, but right now I just feel like I can't... I can't... You don't make me go back in there. I know what you mean. I mean, I feel similarly about um, the current state of Doctor Who. Oh, right. And that creatively it's effectively in the toilet. But as soon as a new creative team mm. takes over, it's, it's going to be different, yeah. definitely, and um, hopefully more competent. And... I think it's probably worth taking the same attitude with The Force Awakens. It's a f- completely fresh slate. It's a new team. The only people they've kept on are the people who actually knew what they were doing. Yes. You mean but, they haven't kept Rick McCallum, whatever his name was? Oh, George Lucas's enabler. That's, yeah, I think that's the... <laughs> oh, yeah, the it's, gonna, it's, gonna, yeah it's going to be great, tattooed across his forehead. Mm. Um, but uh, THX1138 was Lucas's first film, his first feature film. Um, shot in 1969 and based on a student short he made a couple of years earlier which had caught the eye of Francis Ford Coppola um, now you told me just before we started recording that you'd actually bought the DVD of THX oh no sorry I, I rented it on Amazon oh I see but it's uh, it's the it's the director's cut that's the only one you can get yes um, so that sounds familiar with George Lucas <laughs> yes it does doesn't it um, but uh, my reason for asking is that I have the, my DVD here which I actually bought from Computer Exchange at Tooting Broadway on my way the last time I came to see <laughs> you um, and it cost me a pound 
which shows you how easily available it is. Mm. But um, the DVD contains the actual original short film, and oh. it's it looks very much like the finished movie. It's very weird and abstract and as if it was made by robots or space people. It's on YouTube as well. I, I ended up watching it. Oh, you have seen it? Yeah, oh, I, didn't, I didn't watch the whole thing because I'm a Philistine. It's, uh, it's not a barrel of laughs. No, but what... I mean, it's got a very good sound design. I mean, it's interesting. It's this thing... It, it shows you what a difference sound design can make to a film because it's got lots of overlapping channels of radio chatter and stuff like that and it actually fills in where the images on screen might look a little bit sparse the soundscape actually really makes a difference and really makes it feel like a world I was was very surprised by it and that's definitely the thinking that's carried over in the the finished film Mm. that it's building this whole world through sound and we only see these very sparse spartan surroundings filmed on location for the most part as well Mm. which makes it all the more weird the, the infinite white void was a set yes <laughs> you look worried for a minute about the real place <laughs> yeah I did wonder where they'd filmed that but yeah yeah no I'd read that because it was for growing up as a Star Wars obsessed kid I, I obviously read everything I possibly could about George Lucas and I read it's filmed in what was then being built as the Bay Area Rapid Transport System. Or yeah, something. the BART system, which is yeah. effectively the San Francisco tube. Yeah, so uh, and it looks great. You know, it gives it it gives it a degree of real. It, it makes it look solid. It makes it, it makes it look real. I mean, um, it's the used future mm. aesthetic that it's it's weird and futuristic, but it's actually been there for quite a while, and that's also carried through into Star Wars. Yeah. We have the Millennium Falcon, which is you know, it's an amazing futuristic spaceship, but it's like 50 years old and bits of it are falling off. Yeah, and it's the, it's the deliberate contrast, of course, between that and 2001 that mm. makes it, because 2001 everything is shiny and new and terribly exciting. And it's that weird... <laughs> 2001 is not terribly exciting. <laughs> I, well, I know what you mean. Yes, but... yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes, it's um, it's terribly exciting in a very um, detached, emotionless, logical sense of the word terribly exciting. Yes. Um, but it's that thing that you, you could watch Star Wars and you would go, oh my God, it's a spaceship. And your reaction wasn't being echoed by the characters on screen. And that, as a kid, that was funny, that, that people could take something as exciting as a spaceship for granted and actually be unimpressed by it. Was right. Was... Uh, so, again, not an attitude. I suppose the closest thing would be the TARDIS in Doctor Who, where that was, you had this incredibly complicated space-time event that was used to get the Doctor into the stories. It doesn't work properly. No. Um, the film starts with this very odd choice of prologue. Mm. Um, as you said, we watched the director's cut, which was put together in 2004, which follows on from the Star Wars special editions in having generally been monkeyed about with. But one of the really peculiar changes is that that opening sequence that goes before the opening titles was changed. Originally it was, I believe, part of a trailer for Things to Come. Oh, okay. Um, The 1938 science Mm. fiction film that was a future history of the next century. But in the director's cut, it's a trailer for an episode of the Buck Rogers 
cinema serial. Yes, yeah. Which has also been very slightly edited, so it says that he's experiencing the incredible world of the 20th century. Is that... I listened to that, and I thought I was just going deaf. No, there, I, there is a, a notable cut there, because the way the, yeah. the way the voiceover actor is speaking, there is a cut, because otherwise it doesn't make any sense. No, that was... I, I listened to it, and I... I, I I genuinely couldn't work out what was going on there. And I, I think I went back and watched it twice because I, I just thought I'd misheard it. Um, yeah, no, that make, that's interesting. That makes sense. Because I was sitting there thinking, well, surely it should be but we're just in the 25th century. And then I just decided that maybe the announcer was slowing his words or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, Hollywood at the time. Yes. They're, all, they're all enjoying their liquid... Mm, um, liquid lunches. Liquid, liquid, liquid drugs. Um, so we have, we're presented with this very innocent dream of the future full of daring do and exciting innovations and then we start on the actual film which has very immediately it's incredibly ominous and incredibly oppressive with very moody title music and the opening credits scrolling down the screen and that's it's weird how wrong that looks because we're so used to seeing it the other way I, I can only think of one other film where they have the credits scrolling downwards. What's that one? Seven. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Which is, again, incredibly oppressive mm. and grim, although for other reasons. Um, the music is actually by Lalo Schifrin. Yes. Uh, yeah. Who is quite a well-known film composer. Listener, you, if you haven't heard the name, you will have heard his most famous uh, piece of music, which is the Mission Impossible theme. Yeah, yeah, which is immediately what I thought of when, when the name came up. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the thing that he's been yeah. remembered for. In fact, he's, I, think, I believe he's not only still alive, he's still working. I, I, I hope so, yeah. Um, but uh, the film starts with this eerie montage of surveillance and... Yeah, and deliberately shot um, off a monitor in a way that makes it obvious that it's being shot off a monitor as well, I think, isn't yes, it? Yes, to make everything sort of looks third-hand. Mm. Which, again, goes back to that sort of uh, used future aesthetic, because the way, you would, the way you might expect to do it would be that you would shoot those sequences yourself. And then maybe, again, do what, do what they do in Doctor Who, where they kind of put a visible scanline pattern over it or something, so it's obviously... But, but to actually film it, play it through a monitor, and then record the output back off the monitor, which is what I was assuming they was doing, really degrades the picture and makes it look less futuristic, in a way. Yeah, I think it's, it's a, I think a smart choice, mm. just to make everything look as if it's degrading slowly. There's this recurring thing all the way through the film of these systems don't work properly anymore mm. um, and we sort of we, through this we slowly are introduced to the, this world that there is this civilization somewhere at some time everyone is bald glad to see that we've both shaved our heads to prepare for this in, in tribute podcast, yes, yeah. and we're both wearing white pyjamas well yes and we're also <laughs> broadcasting from a featureless white void <laughs> which Yes, yeah, it's a bit awkward, really, because yeah. I can't find any of my stuff. <laughs> my notes are just unreadable. Um, but yes, everyone is everyone is forced to, you know, everyone is hairless and everyone's wearing these white tunics. Everyone has names and number. Uh, everyone has these like license plate codes instead of names, and everyone is drugged up to the eyeballs on mm. sedatives. Yeah, it's 
it's it's it's very it's a template for a lot of other films. Um, it feels like it's certainly a template. Woody Allen must have watched this before he did Sleeper, because oh yeah, I, I watched this and, th- and it's like finding the the it's like finding the Rosetta Stone for Sleeper. You suddenly understand <laughs> where a lot of the stuff that Woody Allen was specifically parodying must have come from. Mm. And I think a lot of it because that I'm trying to think whether that kind of shaven-headed look to to suggest a dystopian future it must crop up in other other later films um, although I'm now sure the only one I can think of is uh, the character from Star Trek the motion picture and she certainly isn't reflect, meant to reflect that aesthetic no I think it's, it's more supposed thing. to be that that's just uh, okay that thing on her, yeah. her species that she, they, don't, they don't grow head, head hair yeah head yeah. hair Yes, well, there's, there's, <laughs> there must be a better name for it than that. Hair? But she has eyelashes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. The only industry in this civilization appears to be building robot policemen. And there are robot policemen everywhere. A nuclear-powered robot policeman? There's nu- well, that's the whole thing, that nuclear power runs everything. Oh, uh, yeah, okay, that makes, yeah. Um, because we never... There's nothing... I mean, one thing that is very specific in... Um, that George Lucas is very specific about, and some of the extras on DVD, we don't see any... There's anything natural. Mm. There is no other source of energy. We never see anything that's made of wood, for example. Everything is artificial, everything is constructed. The people are artificial, effectively. Mm. Because there's the robots, and there is the... the, the it's, I, <clears throat> I, was, I was thinking about this as I was making my notes. You can't really call them people, because everything that is... It's all kind of pre-programmed. Exactly. Yeah. They've they've been they they don't have they have serial numbers. Their emotions have been suppressed by all these drugs that they're taking that they're being told to take. There's everything that re- makes them a person has been leached away, and they're just human beings. They're yeah, well, they're just and, bodies. And, 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 yeah, they're 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 sentient. They're, not, they're barely even sentient, to be mm. honest. But they're sort of they're able to function. But they can't expand beyond that. They have no sense of anything beyond. Well, then there's there's the implication. Immediate. Of, yeah, and there's the implication a, li- a little way into the film that um, when uh, THX is doing his job, fueling the nuclear powered policeman, he's able to do it better when he's on drugs than he is when he comes off them. Because it's when he comes off them that's when he causes the accident that. Uh, because he because it's so, it's so yeah. dangerous it, yeah, yeah. and it's been one thing that they say there's all these endless announcements in voiceover comments that come that come in over the, over the action that oh yes, they, uh, there was been, there was another accident mm. in D section today where they lost uh, two thousand work units but we've only lost fifteen hundred in, in the last work session keep up the good work yes but, yeah and wow, these people are that's like World War One these people are just being basically executed left right and centre because the systems don't work properly, and it's um, it's one of the things that the film borrows from Metropolis. I think is the idea that the workforce is just they're biological they're, machines, yeah, they're yeah, they're human machines, exactly. Yeah. On his way home from, I say home, on his way back from his workplace, THX stops in at a little shop, and he buys himself a new thing. Yes, <laughs> and a new three um, um, D shape. It's a, 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 new, a new red shape for himself. A kind of um, dodeca- it was like a dodecahedron, yes, so yeah. like, like a star shape. 
that's, I mean, it, the, the prop looks like it's just been sort of made out of folded paper. And it probably was, because it was a fairly cheap production. And he gets it home, and he puts it down on the table. And I like where he sort of, he puts it on one edge, and then it just sort of settles. And he lets go, and he sort of reaches back to it. Mm. So, like, just to stop it from falling. But eventually he just puts it in the slot on the wall, and it's evaporated. And it's just gone. And there are messages about consuming as well, yeah, aren't there? Yeah, it's and just that... this, this pointless consumerism. Mm. And they do say over again, well, they have, they have the prayer booths as yes. well, that people can go in and confess their sins to Robot Jesus, um, which is a, it's a real painting that mm. they've sort of screen printed of, of Christ. And says, oh, and remember, remember to buy, buy more, and be happy. So there's this endless just cycle of you go to work, your job consists of reinforcing the system that you live in. You buy a thing that doesn't do anything, and you have to take the drugs to make sure that you don't think anywhere outside this meaningless cycle. It's a very I wonder, I wonder no, what what decade could this film possibly have been made in? Could yes, it have been it, in the, the late sixties? Well, that's kind of the nice thing, isn't it? Because it's partly it's made in the late sixties, so you get that whole kind of sixties sixties aesthetic of consumerism is pointless so let's all be flower children but at the same time it also because I think it then leaches into the 70s as well you've also got that very sort of brutal 70s aesthetic that comes in where where people are already starting to worry about overpopulation and the oil running out and assorted wars that just seem to be out so it's, it's, it manages to be a very 60s and a very 70s film at the same time yeah it's and it's a film that I think it could only exist on the border of the two. Mm. I mean, it was, it was shot in 69, it was edited all the way through 1970, and it came out in 71. But it's very much, it exists at that precise time. Yeah, they, they, what, sometimes people call it the 60s hangover, but don't they, I think? Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, by 1971, we had the French Connection, which was yeah. know, about how police aren't nice. <laughs> well, obviously, well, in the 60s, they said the police aren't nice, but here, the policeman is the hero but he's the hero who goes around beating the living daylights out of people because, at the very least, he's a cop and the other people are heroin dealers. Yes, so, yes, yes, so root for the cop that beats people up. Yeah, because at the very least, he's going to stop your children from being, having been injected full of heroin. And that's the kind of bleak, pessimistic tone that we have. Um, uh, THX lives in... His, his home is, it looks like it's just two rooms, one of them's got a table in it and then it's got a couple of chairs. Yeah. I, mean, I, I imagine this, might, again, might be a function of the budget. But, but it's so... There's a bathroom, isn't there? Because you yes. see a toilet yeah. at one point and that's a very... I can't help thinking that, and it sounds kind of dumb to... It was expect. a mistake to show a toilet. Well, not so much that it was... Not that it was a mistake. I wonder if it was a very deliberate thing, because at that point, I think American TV had real restrictions about what you could and couldn't show. And I don't think... I think toilets were forbidden. There's a story about um, a, a 50s American sitcom called Leave It to Beaver, where I think it may even be the script of the first episode... Um, the script has these two kids and they adopt a turtle or some animal that has to live in water and they keep, they decide to keep it in the toilet system. And this actually caused a bit of a scandal. And the, the TV, uh, I think it was NBC, decided they couldn't show it because you couldn't show a toilet on TV. It was indecent. It's, it's completely absurd. I uh, know, yeah, absolutely. I mean, but this, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it doesn't, I mean, it's completely insane. Yeah, but this was the same decade that 
you uh, when um, I Love Lucy, Lucy Ball, she wasn't pregnant, she was with child. And these attitudes carried on all the way through. Again, and, and I'm going to probably keep referring back to Star Trek in the course of this, but when Gene Roddenberry was doing Star Trek, you weren't allowed to show women's belly buttons. If you look at the costumes of all the women in Star Trek, they've always got their navel covered because, again, NBC Standards and Practices Department thought that there was something wrong with that you couldn't show them. And yet, at the same time, there were other standards that we would think would be much more restrictive were not so bad. I mean, I think I Love Lucy. I mean, you say they would have acknowledged that she was with child. Mm. Was there any mention of the fact that her child would be mixed race? No, nobody Given seemed... that the father would be Cuban. No, nobody no. seemed to care about that, that. Apparently, absolutely fine. And by modern standards, of course it's fine. But in the 50s, you'd think someone would mention something about it. Mm. In Star Trek, they had the kiss between Kirk and Uhura, yes. which the network, as far as I gather, waved through without yeah. too much concern. But local affiliates in racist areas decided, no, we can't have that because next they'll be wanting to vote. <laughs> Yeah, and that's and and so I I wasn't sure whether the shot of the toilet was a very very low level sort of dig at TV that look you know we can show toilets you can't. Well, um, I believe the first film to show a toilet flushing was Psycho. Really? Okay. Um, because there's a there's a scene. It's not flushing the normal thing you put in a toilet. It's torn up paper. Ah. Oh, right, okay. um, Marion Crane having stolen the money is sort of working out how much. Working some sums or something, mm. and then tears up the paper when she's done the sums and throws it in the toilet and flushes it. And they later fish uh, the a piece of evidence out. Ten years later, in 1970, uh, was the first film to show someone sitting on a toilet, which is Catch 22. Yeah, and both films actually star Martin Balsam, and he's the one using the loo in Catch 22. I mean, the just to, to briefly continue the, the toilet related discussion, I think the first sound of a toilet flushing was in the American version of Till Death Us Do Part. Was it called Archie Bunker's Place? I'm absolutely was, willing to be com- corrected on this. It ran for so long that it went through a sort of a format change and it became Archie Bunker's Place. I, right. think, I think the actress, either the, probably the character, definitely the character, possibly the actress who played Archie Bunker's wife, died. Yeah. So they reformatted it. But previous to that, it was called All in the Family. All in the, that's it. And I think it was All in the Family was the first time you heard a toilet flushing on TV. I I could be wrong about that, but I seem to remember that that all in the family was pretty was good it, at breaking a lot of taboos. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was the American Telethus Dupont, mm. and it was very open on breaking boundaries in the way that Telethus Dupont had in the UK. I mean, there was an episode in which Archie Bunker's wife is raped. Hell's too. Which was obviously even. I mean, it was a sitcom, but they took it very seriously, and it was. Absolutely groundbreaking at the time that yeah, this, they would even cover this in any way at all. But Carol O'Connor, who played Archie Bunker and had a, a big input to the show, was quite a uh, forward-thinking man, mm. and was actually furious that people would mistake him for his character. That well, they would actually have, any, that have that they would share any opinions. Well, that was the same. That was always the story with uh, Warren Mitchell. Warren Mitchell and, as Alf Garnett as well, wasn't it? Was yeah, because he, I mean, Alf Garnett would rail against all sorts of other people, including yeah. Jews. And I've got uh, one of himself was Jewish, so obviously that gives him a license to say anything he wants. Yes, <laughs> it's like you know um, the producers. The producers couldn't have been made if Mel Brooks wasn't Jewish. No, that's true. Actually, um, yes, yeah. <laughs> but um, race comes up in THX, I think, as well. Yeah, it does in a way, doesn't it? Um, they have a, they have a kind of television um, with holograms, 
And all the holograms that we see, all the hologram people, people, humans, are African-American. Mm. And towards the end of the movie, we see a, a, a real-life hologram who actually claims to have escaped from his circuit. And as far as we know, it's actually some kind of electronic being who's escaped into the real world. And he's African-American as well. Yeah. So, and we never, and those are the only black people we see. And we yeah. never see any white people in the holograms. I never, that was something I didn't pick up on um, until, until, that, until the hologram character turns up. Um, because, and obviously it's done, in some ways it's probably done as a visual thing as well, but obviously they're running through a white void, they're all dressed in white, and then suddenly you come across this African-American character. And the contrast, it's, it's, the, it's, it's almost the first thing you notice is, oh yeah, there's only been white people in this film up to this point. Mm, but with very good reason. Yes, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's going off on tension with Star Wars. You must have seen a thing recently about people complaining that George Luke... I mean, that that's the new Star Wars film is anti-white because it happens to have a black leading character. <sighs> and I thought, you're not, you're not allowed to watch Star Wars if you're going to make that kind of Yeah, yeah. If you're gonna... Who the hell do you think Lando Calrissian is? Also, George Lucas's wife is African-American. Mm. Well, there's the whole... I mean, regardless of the quality of the film, and, and I haven't seen it, so I can't judge, but there's the film George Lucas made called Red Tails... Um, yes, I've heard about that. Yeah, I mean, I've I've only ever heard of it by reputation, and, and the fact that sadly it isn't very good. But uh, yeah. by, by all accounts, it's a it's a very honest attempt. Yes, I think that um, Lucas has always been, I'm not going to say left leaning, but he's been relatively progressive hmm. in his ideas. I mean, I think there's someone someone complaining, you know, why were there any sort of leading black characters in Star Wars? Because in 1977, that was a a major issue, probably more so than today. I thought, well, okay, well. We'll, make, we'll create a new black character mm. and make him a major character and that's Lando Calrissian who is a keystone of the last two movies of the trilogy um, and Darth Vader's black yes yeah. Well, and he turns out to be the greatest hero in the whole saga I suppose he so yes. the emperor yes he does doesn't he yes yeah in that, from, from that perspective yeah. his son appeals to the good in him and uh, he and there well, was good in him all along Yes, yes, and, and and he's redeemed. Yeah, that's that's true. I hadn't hadn't really thought of that. Now, THX's fellow habitee, L U H, is a woman, and she appears to have gone off her meds because she is somewhat emotional herself, and she tampers with THX's meds, and he starts to go into withdrawal. I was a little bit caught out by the start of the film because. Um, what it does is it just drops... There, there is no explanation. There is no... It is not our custom in this society to do speeches. Right? It just drops you in, yeah. and you're basically expected to sink or swim. And I was kind of floundering for the first five or ten minutes because it's like, OK, what the hell's going on? Why are these people talking so funny? Where are we? Why does everyone keep going to that? Why is everyone's medicine cabinet talking to them? Um, What's wrong? Exactly, exactly, all that kind of stuff. It really took me a while. And there's a very good science fiction writer called John Brunner who wrote a book called Stand on Zanzibar. Um, and it's very, a very, very similar thing in that he deliberately seems to front-load the start of his books with futuristic slang. And you spend the first two or three pages just going, I don't understand what's going on here. You know, and, and that was kind of my feeling with, with this as well. So it did take me a little while to work out what was going on there. But yes... She has, as it becomes clearer later on, that yes, she's at some point she's obviously decided to stop taking her medication, um, and 
she then tampers with his and I couldn't quite work out whether she was she she was just switching them around or something and it was she was trying to deliberately cause a, 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 a an adverse reaction anyway um, yeah she's replacing something with something mm. else but essentially it means that the um depressants I imagine because they're depressing his emotional yeah. responses I imagine that's right I'm sure I'm sure someone will correct me if that's wrong um so it switches them for something that's ineffective yeah and then you have the whole sequence and he goes off to the the church of the holy computer or whatever it is yes um om om that was it that caught that threw me for a second when they said the church of om because again being a bit of a uh, being a doctor who fan and all that kind of stuff i immediately started thinking of omega and oh i see and i, I it just threw me for a second the uh, alpha and the omega yeah 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 so uh i i I, I went up a bit of a blind alley as I was watching the film there. Um, the original, the, actually, I believe it was the... Maybe the studio, maybe Francis Ford Coppola, wanted Orson Welles to, to supply the voice of Ong. And apparently that was a likely outcome. Because, I mean, for a voiceover role, half a day's work, mm. they would probably have pinned him down for long enough to do that. But George Lucas instead went for an unknown stage actor called James Wheaton who I think is very good because he has that very calm, mm. serious, superficially reassuring voice. But also very flat, and it's just it's just saying non-sequiturs, isn't it? It's just saying, I see, and please continue, and you've done... And it's... I understand. I understand. And it's just dropped in almost at random, so the guy's talking, and these, you just get the, all these, these sound clips, and they're just... And I don't know if it would have worked as well with Orson Welles, because he did have a very distinctive voice. It's too fruity. Hmm. And he's, there's too much personality there. That's nothing. It needs to be leached of yeah. of personality and emotion. He's a very very good actor, but ironically, I wonder if he might have been too good an actor for that particular role. I think it might have been a distraction to have. He wouldn't have been good enough to reach that level of non-person. Mm. But I mean, have Robert. I mean, I haven't actually mentioned who any of the actors are yet. No, it's um, true. Uh, THX is played by Robert Duvall, who was making a name for himself as a character actor at the time. And of course, to, and the following year would be in The Godfather. Um, and I think at times he's really struggling with keeping his performance flat. Yeah. But also trying to engage the audience, because if he's just completely blank, then there's nothing nothing for the audience to engage with. And it's hard, it's, as you've said, it's, it's a difficult film for the audience to engage with because it's so sterile. Yeah. And it's supposed to be. And presumably it must be an acting challenge as well, because effectively what you're talking about is you're talking about playing a character who has been drugged well the implication is drugged almost from childhood because later on at the end of the film you see Donald Pleasance and he's talking to some kids and they've got the educational syringes on their arms haven't yes. they and they're, they're, they're having lessons pumped into them so he's playing a character who has been drugged since birth who is now experiencing emotions and yeah I mean that's, a, that's an acting challenge I suspect yeah. and they had difficulty finding a female lead someone to play L.U.H. because they couldn't find that many good enough actresses who were willing to shave their heads. Oh, <laughs> fair enough. But um, they found uh, Maggie McComey, who hasn't really acted a huge amount since then. So it's sort, of, sort of her one big role, but I think she's extremely good. Yeah, yeah, she's, she's, she's very, very good. And it's an interesting film to, to watch because... It's a film that's not afraid to make the actors look ugly. 
it's something particularly when you see the close-ups of the actors and things, you suddenly become aware that you can see stubble and you can see sort of moles and imperfections on the skin. And that's that seems to me to be a slightly unusual thing to see in a Hollywood film. Normally if you went in for a big close-up on somebody, you would expect the skin to be fairly flawless. But in this case, the makeup does seem to be very rough. Mm. And it's not a film that's afraid to make it... It's quite happy to make its actors look unattractive. Um, it's, I think it's it's a film that's not concerned with... Because, I mean, because it's so sterile, because it's so machine-like, it's not concerned about aesthetics. Mm, yeah. So if the actors look slightly odd... I mean, in, later on, I mean, if you jump forward, eventually they're caught not having their meds. They go on yeah. trial. Um, La is taken away, and THX is sentenced to a white void. And the collection of people he meets in the white void are quite the bunch of characters. This was the point in the film that began to try my patience a little bit, because it's a scene that just seems to go on without any real point to it. Um, yes, it's, it does slow down quite a lot at that point, which is a mistake for a film this short. Yeah, and there's what it reminded me of, again, sorry, another Star Trek episode, um, where... Uh, characters just will sit because they because Star Trek never had the money to do anything. <laughs> the characters would often just sit down in rooms and make speeches at each other. I think stories like Plato's Stepchildren, uh, where they all that they go to a planet that's um, been taken over by people that all look like ancient Greeks, but they've all got telekinetic powers. And for some reason, as I was sitting there watching all these characters making these very highfalutin speeches at each other. I suddenly was reminded of this this episode of Star Trek called Plato's Stepchildren, right. and not necessarily in a good way either. Oh yeah, uh, it just it just kind of goes on. Um, I gather at one point this is the one piece of research I did for this film. I think at one point Donald Pleasance was given some Nixon speeches to quote. Yes, um, and there is a bit where Donald Pleasance suddenly makes that um, what I always think of as the very Nixon V sign. Is, is it as he's walking away from somebody? He makes that V for victory thing. Um, that of course that Nixon famously did when he left I think when he left the White House for the last time so I don't know whether it was a, a thing that he did on a regular basis I believe he did my memory of him as, uh, him doing it, is standing at the door of an aeroplane talking to mm. steps yeah that, that might that could have been just as he returned from China yeah possibly but anyway at some point when they're in the white void Donald Pleasance gives the, the gives that V for victory sign I didn't notice that I'm, yeah and I assume that's just a little bit of an in-joke that yeah. reflects the speech or something but um, yes, Donald Pleasance's character, S.E.M., um, is, is, is of an odd one because he seems to be off his meds as well mm. or someone's not told Donald Pleasance to calm down. It's kind of... It's odd, isn't it? I mean, it could be... Because famously George Lucas was supposedly not very good at directing actors, so it could just be that Donald Pleasance turned up on the first day and started and everyone went... Oh, you're going to do it like that, are yeah. you? And nobody told him. Because he's the biggest name in the cast yeah. at the time. Yes, yeah, he would have been, actually, wouldn't he? he? He'd, two years earlier, he'd been uh, played Blofeld mm. and twice, a gigantic mega-hit of a movie. So he would have been a big mm. a, a, a big name, sort of a, like Deval was sort of being up-and-comer and here's sort of a well-known character actor that helps sell the movie. Um, but he's someone who has tried to uh, adjust the records so that he can be... THX's new roommate and it's inferred that he might have uh, oh forbidden designs yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I think is a 
I, they needed to think that through more because that's fine, but should how how come that happened? Yeah, well, I shouldn't he shouldn't he be taking the bromide that everyone else is? I suppose the implication is is just that this whole society doesn't, as you say, doesn't really work properly. There's how yeah. it should work, and there's how it actually works. I mean, there's there's that there's, there's a lovely little scene, which is of a, one of the policeman robots, because the the, the policeman was there everywhere. One of them sort of drunkenly walking down a corridor, and then turning to the left and just walking smack into the wall, mm. taking a step back, and again, walking smack into the wall. Everything's just falling to bits. Yeah, but there's a bit as well, isn't there, when they call for the mind block on THX, and it all starts to look like it's going wrong because there's the risk of an explosion at the same time. And all the kind of the supervisors start bitching among each other about who's put this, who's authorised this yeah, mind block. Yeah, it, it's just a bureaucratic cock-up, yeah. and that they shouldn't have done this because he's in the middle of holding this lump of radioactivity and because he's got the mind lock on he drops it and it starts burning a hole in things and mm. everyone starts evacuating except THX because he's got his, you know, he's got his mind lock on and it, it's, it's all falling apart mm. one that I really love is um, there's some people standing in a lift oh that's right and, um, and there's, they're not saying this lift is out of order and they still just stand there and someone else wanders in and just lets them wait there with them, and because they just can't cope with the idea that it doesn't work, yeah. they've been so indoctrinated into this perfect enclosed system that they can't accept that it doesn't work properly. And what it kind of reminds me of a little bit is um, Out of the Unknown, a series of science fiction, um, an anthology series that BBC Two did. They did a, an adaption of uh, an Ian Forrester story called The Machine Stops. And funnily enough, that's got a woman with a shaved head in it. I think this is what I was thinking of earlier. This is, it's got a woman with a shaved head in it to suggest it's futuristic. It's a society where everybody's needs are catered for by machines and everybody kind of lives slightly uh, soulless lives because nobody ever needs to meet or anything. And obviously the machine is breaking down, things are starting to go wrong, but people can't cope with it because they're used to the machine having been around forever. Um, and that's and that's an echo that's echoed in THX. I don't think I don't think there's any way that George Lucas could have seen it. It's possibly he could have read the short story, of course, when he was doing research for the script. But I don't think Out of the Unknown ever was shown in America. I could be I, wrong about that. I wouldn't that. think it was like a British television show in America was very thin on the ground mm. I mean, um, unless it was made on film because um, like the Avengers was yeah, yeah. shown on American TV but um, Out of the Unknown was, was, would that have been made on videotape? It was made on videotape for BBC Two so I wouldn't yeah. say it was likely and it's no. actually, just to confirm you said it was by E.M. Forster yes E.M. Forster who wrote Howard's End <laughs> I would just like to confirm that that, that is correct because I had to double check that when I first read it well, no that can't be right <laughs> Like, like Jane Austen having actually written Pride and Prejudice and Zombies mm. yes <laughs> but um, in his commentary on the DVD George Lucas describes how the movie is the same story told three times but in different ways ok I don't see it's, it's the breaking out from contained circumstances so in the first part you have them breaking out mentally through taking, stopping, stopping to take their medication experiencing emotion and falling in love in the second part you have it in a more abstract sense where they are being held prisoner in this white void and they decide to leave 
and in the third part you have a more conventional cinematic version, which is then physically escaping from this environment in a chase sequence. Fair enough. I, I that completely passed me by. But yeah, I mean that. It's a, it's a very one two three act mm. structure. It's very very simple, but I think it's quite clever. It's a very sort of elegant, simple. Yeah. Structure, and you could then, with that as a basis, you can then build a lot on that and put in all kinds of interesting detail without having to worry about does this make sense as a story. Yeah, I mean, sadly, these days, of course, what it brings to mind is George Lucas's infamous comment on the Phantom Menace DVD, where, on the documentary, where he's talking about how the structure of the Phantom Menace echoes the structure of earlier films and he says it rhymes it's like poetry <laughs> I'm locked in a silent scream because I've I mean listener if you haven't seen the reviews of the Star Wars prequel trilogy produced by Red Letter Media which you can look up on YouTube they're available to watch for free they are an absolute masterclass in how to pull apart films that don't work and do so in a very entertaining and interesting way Yeah, because yeah. they go into that over and over again about how Lucas seemingly forgot how to make films and forgot how to tell stories, and given his apparent obsession with Joseph Campbell. Yeah. And the ironic. Storytelling stars, it's, it's almost unforgivable. Yeah. But, I mean, the, the, the crazy thing is that the, the problem with the, the Star Wars prequels is not, is not the structure. The problem is that they're lousy. Well, <laughs> yeah. it start, I say it starts with the structure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I. I, I uh, but yeah, but you really are recommended listener to, to watch those. Oh yes, just just, just to, to, to just touch on the main thing that um, they notice that in the Phantom Menace there is no central protagonist mm. that drives the story forward. It's this very vague, amorphous bunch of characters that come in and out, and no one is pushing the story. That's the key problem. Mm. But I mean, uh, <laughs> but then you watch the, the the making of documentary, and Lucas is just going on about how clever he's been with the structure and it's like who cares about the structure the film itself has no protagonist it yeah, doesn't matter how good yeah. the structure is or... well, well he isn't being clever with the structure because there isn't one I suppose that's true yeah yeah I mean I mean I, if he's trying to do something complex that's fine mm. but you have to have you can't have everything really complex uh, you can have a complex structure and a simple story or vice versa if that makes sense yeah but you can't have, and if you have both really simple, then that's going to be something that's enjoyable for small children, which is fine. But if they're both really hard to follow, if the story's complicated and it's being told in a complicated way, no one is going to understand what on earth's going on. And you would have made a bad movie. Mm. And he did, because oh. The Phantom Menace is terrible. And Attack of the Clones is even worse. <laughs> and I would be willing to go out on a limb and argue that The Revenge of the Sith is the worst of the three, but that's probably the subject for. It's superficially well, a better film, but it it's had. Like, it's like saying, you know, which. Live would be the most painful. Yes, to yeah, off this by is true. Um, I mean, without going into without going into too much detail, the, the, I think that the third film is the one that contains all the potential and all the setup for because it's the climax. The and if, yeah. if you can finish well, then yeah. it could, then you can forgive things from earlier. Yeah, and it comes. Oh, it, oh, it comes to the right ending, like Terminator Three, which has an absolutely perfect ending. Yes. The last five minutes of Terminator 3 are... I was yeah, no, really shocked when I saw it, but I thought, no, that is exactly right. The rest of the movie isn't very good, and it looks really cheap, but it ends very well, so I'm willing to forgive mm. it, particularly compared to Terminator Salvation, which is dreadful. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. Revenge of the Sith, 
it just slouches to a conclusion. Yeah, it, it had the it, it had the most potent story potential. As a kid, going back again to to the original Star Wars, I think it's in the Star Wars novelization. There's a very short paragraph where Ben Kenobi is talking. He's, he's either talking to Luke Skywalker or he's remembering. But it's described how he and Luke's father fought on the edge of. I think it's even described as a fire pit rather than as a volcano or something. And it's, it's literally just a paragraph of background, but it sounds like the most exciting thing in the world. And then when you see it projected in front of you for two hours or whatever the, the runtime of Revenge of the Sith is, it's just death. <laughs> it's dismal. And it's, it's, there's all kinds of reasons why George Lucas lost his ability to make decent films. And his overall allowance on visual effects mm. is one of them. Um, I mean, um, the version of T- I mean, did we mention earlier that we watched the special edition? Yeah, well, we don't have any choice, do you? Because we don't have any choice. But the amendments he made for the special edition, I think, are, for the most part, very sympathetic with the original and actually help to expand the world that he didn't have the money and the resources to construct. Yeah. He, does make, he does make some really odd missteps, but for the most part, it actually works. Up to the the revised sequence of the mind block um, and the. Uh, you keep calling it the mind block. It's mind lock. Mind lock. Sorry, mind block. You're mind driving block. me out of my brain. Getting it wrong. <laughs> okay, sorry. I'm getting thx one one three eight wrong. I apologise. Okay, stop getting thing wrong. <laughs> You're just lucky that I haven't called it THQ or something like that or some other combination of letters oh, you'd be dead by now <laughs> that'll come later um, but the during the mind lock sequence that's a really well put together edited and exciting sequence yeah. and somebody very a very very nice person on YouTube has put up a comparison of original THX and the director's cut and I was really surprised to see that that sequence is almost completely re-edited for the special edition. And what it reminds you of is the fact that George Lucas was an inc- a really good film editor. Oh, yes. Um, and, uh, you know, you go back to stuff like American Graffiti, original Star Wars, even uh, the opening sequence of Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, where they're driving along through the desert and Hound Dog is playing. That's yeah. a really nice sequence. It's really well put together and edited. It's just a shame about the rest of the film. Um, but that opening, I remember sitting in the cinema as Crystal Skull started, and there was a moment of disappointment as it's like, oh, they're not going to start with the Indiana Jones music. And then after that, I didn't care because it was Hound Dog and it was the car, the mm. car driving sequence. It's a bit of a surprise occasionally to see that that he is still capable of returning to his roots and returning to what he was good at. I'd love to ask him, you know, and also it's because I don't think he's a bad person. No. In any sense. I think that he's made artistic choices that everyone else thinks are wrong. Mm. But they are artistic choices. And he's a great, he's a great technician. He's obviously a very capable businessman because he's a billionaire based on stuff that he has generated mm. himself. He's a self-made man. But I know I'd like to ask him now that you have all, you know you have complete freedom, you don't have any business address that you've got to watch over. You have all this money. What do you want to do now? And it's like he do, he doesn't seem to know, does he? Because yeah. I mean, maybe maybe he just wants to rest and retire and yeah. you know lounge around in his home and not really do anything. And that's fine, but it's just a bit of a waste. It's if, kind of... if if you've got skills and abilities that 
and, and interest that you could exercise. It's kind of an odd situation because I'm, I'm aware that I'm, I'm sitting here discussing George Lucas and it's just this abstract thing. I could be discussing a, an ocean or something. It's just a thing. It's just over there. I've never met George Lucas. I'm never likely to. But it is this thing that has had an enormous... You know, did have a tremendous impact on my childhood. Mm. And there is this... Almost at times, it, particularly whenever, you know, a revised Star Wars film came out or anything like that, this desire to go, what does he want? Because, I, yeah, I don't understand what drives him at times. He's come out very, very recently with another story saying that he would... Ne- did he say he would never direct another Star Wars film or that he would never direct another film? I believe initially he said that he wouldn't... He wouldn't... He wasn't interested in working on Star Wars anymore mm. one way or the other. But I, I think in the last week at the time of this recording he said he doesn't want to direct feature films anymore. Yeah, but he's spent the last decade saying that he wants to go off and make small independent films. And... It's been the, it's been a peculiar thing because you will see interviews with him and he says, oh, I want to go off and make small independent films. And it's like... Well, you can. You've got more money than God. Um, go off and do yeah, what you he, want. He, I mean, I think most of the Star Wars movies since the original, I think both Empire and Phantom Menace, he funded out of his own pocket. Mm. He had total control. Well, he didn't on Empire because he worked with the people. But on Phantom, he had total control because he paid for it every penny and you know he, if he wants to make like a small film of you know whatever it wants whatever it wants to be about for five million dollars he can mm. I mean this is something that I thought about with, with Christopher Nolan I mean he's always making new movies he's always working but I thought well he's always making these giant epic movies and they all have relatively similar tone why not stretch himself why not say well go to the studio and say look I've made all these giant movies and they've made so much money. Give me $20 million because I want to make a small, uh, light, sophisticated comedy based on the script that I've written. It will cost $20 million. I'll bring it on time and on budget. Give it a little theatrical run and we'll see how it goes. I want to do something different. Mm. No risk, no risk to you. And if I screw up, then say, well, he tried to do something that he couldn't do and it didn't go wrong. And no, he's making another huge, big budget thing. I thought, just try something different. You have all this freedom. Give it a go. I've often wondered what it's like to be an actor that's in a successful TV series. You know, somebody, the, the example that springs to mind is something like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where you've got um, Sarah Michelle Geller worked after Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, Alison Hannigan, obviously. She's done very well because she's, she's in How I Met Your Mother, and that was also a huge hit. But a lo- the other actors. Nicholas Nicholas Brendan did he play Xander? Yeah, has just kind of disappeared, and I can't work out what it's because that's your, your, if your job is to act, you're, you're acting because you like it, you've got into it because that's what you want to do as a career. Then suddenly you're in a successful series, and suddenly you have all the money you'll ever need for the rest of your life, and suddenly you don't need to act. And mm-hmm. I can't, I don't know. Sometimes where, you often hear it. People would talk about the B, working for the BBC, where they would say that it was an incredibly frustrating process. But what made it work was pushing against the boundaries that the BBC set. And I don't know if actors in long-running series who become rich and successful, or um, the same with George Lucas, suddenly there are no boundaries. Whether that is just a kind of artistic paralysis, I, I'm never going to be in that situation, so I, I don't know. But look at somebody like Jerry Seinfeld as well. I mean. What's 
He's done a little bit of stand-up, I think, since. He has. He's been. Working, he had a, a series called The Marriage Ref, which was a kind of. Oh God! Yeah, I've forgotten about that. Show. But he also does um, comedians in cars getting coffee. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. Which is, I think it's. I mean, I can't imagine it generates a huge amount of money from, but it's sort of a, a nice sort of hobby yeah. thing where he gets to talk with other comedians about their craft, and so that's that's something. Yeah, nice. that's a, sort of a little change of direction. And Larry David mm. uh, often did Curb Your Enthusiasm, and now he's starring in a Broadway play that he's written. <laughs> so he's clearly found other things yeah. to do. And maybe that's it. I mean, it, it's again. I'm I'm now I'm, I'm trying to guess George Lucas's motives as if I was ever likely to meet him. Um, but maybe there is just that sense that you've got the opportunity to do anything. He could make a film about anything they wanted to. Where, where, where the hell do you start in that kind of situation? But then again, you hear stories about Woody Allen, where he's just spent years, and, and every time he has an idea, he writes it down on a piece of paper, sticks it in a drawer. And I think, isn't he supposed to, once a year, he goes and pulls a few ideas out of the drawer, and that's where the latest film comes from? Or I, think that's, I think he's pretty much said exactly that. Yeah. And you, I'm just surprised that somebody like George Lucas... You would think he's had 40 years in the industry... There must be ideas that he's had. But then you're back to Red Tails, where that was obviously an idea, that a story that he'd wanted to tell for a long time, and it just met with indifference. And maybe maybe we've broken him. Maybe, maybe, you know, maybe the reaction of Star Wars fans just telling him that he was a terrible person and that he should release the original films for people to see and to judge on their own terms, maybe... He's broken. But, mate, but it's only since the late 90s that mm. this really changed. So with the special editions and then with the prequels and to a much lesser extent Red Tails because it's had almost no reaction, certainly in the UK and the US. Yeah. Got, got very negative reviews. But before that, I mean, he was he'd made Willow. He was producing films, wasn't he? Because he did producing Willow, Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck, of course. The, um, the great um, uh, neglected... Masterpiece of eighties insanity. Yes, um, I mean, it's a film I'd love to watch again. It's you know, it's actually a film I haven't seen. Um, it's on YouTube in its entirety. I'm not su- good it is. kind of not surprised, but but nobody even cares to inform. Even George Lucas, who seems to know an awful lot about copyright law, doesn't seem to be that bothered about the fact that one of his entire films is available for free. Um, well, I believe the rights to the character of Howard has uh, lapsed back to Marvel mm. a long time ago because Howard actually has a cameo at the very end of Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, I'm, Have I, you not I, seen Guardians I've of the Galaxy? I've seen Guardians of the Galaxy, but I turned it off halfway through the closing credits. There is a, 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 at the very end of the closing credits, there is a little cameo where he is one of the exhibits in the Collector's Museum. Uh, I should and he, re- has, he has one line of dialogue supplied by Seth Green. I should start using that website that tells you whether you need to watch all the way to the end of the credits. Or you could just watch the movie all the way to the end. Show some respect for all those technicians. I went to see the movie the other night, and to, to begin with, I was pissed off that people were still coming in ten minutes after the bloody thing started. Really? Someone sat down next to me and said, oh, have we missed much? And I said, yeah, the first five minutes. How about turning up on time, you mm. rotter? But then as soon as the end credits started, people were getting up and practically sprinting out of the door. People worked hard on this. Yeah, and it Give may... yourself time to decompress. Your house isn't going to burn down. Going back to... Um, <laughs> so, well, it might do. 
Yeah, going back to Seven, which which we talked about very briefly earlier because it's the only other film with credits that go the wrong way. I saw Seven when it came out um, in the cinema and it remains one of the weirdest cinema-going experiences because the film finished. And as you say, normally everyone stands up and starts putting on their coats and mm. fleeing for the exits. Everybody just sat there. It was. It's the only time I've seen a cinema audience kind of stunned into insensibility. Nobody knew how to react. Nobody thought about... And it took about 10 seconds before people started to think, oh, yeah, I can leave now. It was being held prisoner. Yeah, it was a very, very odd reaction. I mean, compared to um, AI, I think, which was a film (laughs) that... People started leaving halfway through. (laughs) I've never seen a film stink up the auditorium so much as the screening of AI I went to. People were fleeing. The credits started. And people just... Left and nobody wanted to be around at the end of that film. Mm. I cried at the end of AI. I, I'm mad enough to admit that. Do you, when you say the end of AI, I mean, do you mean the bit where the film should have ended, or the bit where, no, or where, no, where popular consensus says it should have ended, or no, do you mean the, the actual, no, the actual uh, up until the, the the final scene? Wow, oh, very sad. good for you. I I remember just being utterly fed up with the film by that point. Oh. Um. But then again, I may be some kind of monster. Yeah. But equally... the whole sticking out of your head. Well, yes. <laughs> but I, again, sorry, this is the risk of going off on a complete tangent, but, and probably the subject for a completely different podcast. But there is that thing about the way that you respond to a film is, re- is a reaction to the way that the, the audience in the cinema was responding to the film. And it's quite possible that because the rest of the people around me were bored and fidgety, I picked up on that and I became bored and fidgety myself. Um, whereas I suspect if there'd been sort of right, or as I say at the end of seven where everyone was just kind of what the hell was that yeah you just needed yeah. a moment just to catch your breath mm. so, the, so the credits ran all the way through and the actual whole thing had stopped oh no sorry the you had the uh, I mean at the final scene and the credits started and the credits started and normally the moment the music starts and the credits start people begin getting up and begin leaving but there was a definite it's the only time I've seen an audience remain in its seats as the credits start to roll normally as, as you say so normally they start everybody. They, get, they get up straight away yeah yeah and this is about, just about the only time where I've not seen an audience react like that the only time I can think of offhand was with the King's Speech but that's because I think the vast majority of the audience was of retired age mm. so and also they applauded at the end that's very nice because they're just very well behaved people yeah and so that's what happens when you go and see a film in a nice part of town I remember as we're we're on to audience reaction to films um, seeing The Exorcist and it was when it was re-released 1998 so, and I'd seen it the first time I saw it was 1990 and I was 20 uh, and I slept with the light on after seeing The Exorcist it utterly did a number on my subconscious and I was terrified of that film but then went back to see it again in 1998 and what had happened in the meantime was of course that everybody had done parodies of The Exorcist you know, French and Saunders had done a parody. Probably Harry Enfield had done a parody. <laughs> um, three, you know, everybody that had a, everybody and their wife had done parodies of The Exorcist, and the audience kept laughing at The Exorcist, and it annoyed. It actually annoyed me because I still had that memory of this viewing of the film that absolutely terrified me, 
and I'm sitting with an audience that didn't know The Exorcist as a scary film. They just knew it as the source material for all these spoofs, they'd say. And so they kept, they, they, they just kept laughing. And it actually, I, I, I was I annoyed with them. Yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you mean. I, um, I saw The Exorcist for the first time at that, when it was re-released in 1998. And I actually snuck in to see it underage. Oh, yeah, nice one. I was only 17 at the time. Um, and I saw it on a Saturday afternoon at the Odeon in Guildford. Hmm. And I, I found it interesting, but I just, it didn't, just didn't get me. Really? I, I don't know if, I mean, I've always assumed that maybe the reason is because I'm not religious, and I've never been religious, but it's only like the last 10 years that I've hardened towards hmm. atheism, rather than being more, a bit more open-minded. Hmm. But um, it just didn't bother me. I found that, you know, the idea is a bit interesting, but the idea of, you know, My that kind of story, but in a completely modern setting that's an interesting story. the questions that it asks about faith that's interesting but it just didn't get to me my other theory sorry like like Anne Elk in Monty Python I have a theory and it is my theory <laughs> um, is that modern cinemas are too comfortable for horror films to work you sit there you're in a nice padded seat in an air conditioned or a heated environment and you're too comfortable the first time I saw Exorcist was at university I was sitting on a rickety chair in a drafty hall and I was cold all the way through the film and I think sometimes I, I do just feel that, that sometimes if you're too comfortable you can't you can't get scared well I've seen a number of films in the cinema that have made me almost soil myself oh fair enough um, the original Japanese version of Ring where I tried to hide inside my own clothes hmm. and a film from an American film from a few years ago called The Strangers I haven't seen that which is really not terribly well known it starts Liv Tyler of all people and it's about a couple who come back from a wedding late at night um, there's been some sort of row and there's neither of them are sort of ready yet to quite go to bed but they're, while they're sort of just kicking around their house in the middle of the night there's a knock on the door and they start to be menaced by these three people wearing masks and it's done very very sparely very um, very controlled mood and tone there's a scene where Liv Tyler's is in the kitchen pouring some glass of water or something and you can see through in the back of the shot there's like, there's a living room area and there's door very far back of that and then just coming through the door is a figure wearing the mask and he just stands there and watches her and he's out of focus hmm. and he just stands there and stands there, and then he just steps back into the darkness again and it's the most terrifying thing I'd ever seen in a film and I had to sleep with the light when I was about 26 yeah no I'm like a grown up <laughs> But that was that was pretty much my reaction as I, I lay there in my university accommodation, thinking I am, you know, I'm a I, I'm a grown up. I shouldn't be sleeping with the light on, mm. but I'm going to leave it on yeah. just in case. I mean, I, w- I mean, I would say that that's the difference of you know, religious horror versus someone breaking into your house. But rings about someone climbing out of your television. Yes. So that's I'm not aware of which religion that relates to. No, I think it's do possibly you, do you that. Go repeated demo fixer. Yes, well, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Topical humour there. Don't get that out of my use for you anymore. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, back in uh, yes. underground land, about 50 minutes ago when we last mentioned the movie, yes. THX and SEN decide to escape from the prison. They meet up with uh, a hologram. We wonder called SRT, who's really nice. Yeah, he's yeah, he's really, one of the he's, one he's the of the most likable characters in the movie. And it's a very, very clever, very cleverly composed shot as well. Because he, as an actor, I think he's a lot taller than Robert Duvall and yeah, um, and Donald Pleasant. Donald Pleasant. Anyway, yeah. uh, but there's one particular shot where 
the hologram is shot from the front. You see sort of Robert Duval and, and Donald Pleasant from the back. And the hologram looks genuinely looks like a giant. And mm. I assume it's just... It's partly because of the lack of any features or perspective in the shot. So there's not really anything for you to get a grip on in terms of scale. And yeah, there's, it's, it's just a very well-composed, nice little I th- moment. I think it's using the right, the right kinds of lenses as mm. well. Um, but they manage to escape... And they walk, they say, well, just go out to the door. And they just walk through the door into this tsunami mm. of people. I mean, there is actually a, a German word which came to mind, which is Fleischlawine. Which can... literally means meat avalanche. <laughs> Appropriately, because they were wearing white. And there is thousands of people, all tightly packed, all rushing everywhere. And again, very, very good sound work in that point because yeah. there's this constant crashing noise and then you gradually realise that what you're hearing is the sound of thousands of thousands of feet amplified. Mm. And it, it's, yeah, it's very effective. And again, that's, it actually shows why the special edition may well have the edge over the original because in the special edition, that shot, basically the perspective, is gigantic. There's this giant hall of people with all these galleries and mm. it's packed with thousands of people which they couldn't do in the original. It was just one sort of large-ish room yeah. and a corridor. But here it's, it's just gigantic and they end up being separated. Sen wanders off and he takes a train to the end of the line and he starts wandering off down a tunnel and he looks down a hole but he gets scared. It's a very odd little sequence, that, because I kind of don't understand at that point why the plot is following Sen. We want to see what happens to him. I guess so. Um, he's... he's, he's he wants to escape too, but he goes to the edge of the city, yeah. the edge of of the civilization, and you see and he, mud. And he, don't he you? recoils. Sorry. He looks down in a hole, and you see mud. I think, or there's you a, see a, a pool of water. And... I, doesn't he see like a little sort of two-headed scorpion thing? Oh, or something? oh, possibly, yeah. But there's something yeah. not of the city, not of the civilization, and he recoils from it. He mm. runs back, and he gets back on the train, and he winds up hanging around with some. Children being indoctrinated and yes, getting arrested yeah. and led away. There is sort of a, I think, when he's talking to the children. There's a there's a weird bit where you sort of overhear him talking to them, and there's a line where it's sort of a, combined primary economics with a bottle about this big mm. took a week. Yeah, I thought what on earth? I mean, that's again. It's like just these little snippets. Well, of that's again dialogue. because the kids have all got like cylinders on their arms. Yeah, and that's primary, and they're being taught by. I think it's a joke to the to to the kind of the. The idea that people used to have of the future that you take a pill and you have no Beethoven, Be- uh, you know the um, the complete works of Beethoven or something mm. like that, and that's what those kids have all got. Those kids are all in school and they've got tubes on their arm that are teaching them things, um, and I think that's what he's talking about is the fact that when when he was younger, it was a big the, 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 the feeding tube, the the, the the educational feeding tubes were bigger. But that's certainly what I took it for was this this reference to this idea that. You would just take a pill, and you would know. You'd know economics. Yeah, know, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Except because economics is completely meaningless in this world. Because what do you do with your money? You buy. Yeah. You buy a little papier mâché thing. What's that for? It's for throwing away. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So that you can buy more things. Exactly. Buy more and be happy. Yes. SRT and THX steal some cars. They steal a couple of cars. SRT, unfortunately, because he's very tall and sort of ungainly, immediately crashes into a wall and dies. <laughs> Which is... I don't know if that's a joke. It's a weird... <laughs> what it reminded me of was 
the weird bits of slapstick that you'd see in The Phantom Menace, where Jar Jar Binks would get his tongue stuck in something, or he'd tread in some dinosaur poop or something. And again, the same thing, because the car starts up, it drives into a pillow and it, it just disintegrates. As you say, you watch and think, that's kind of funny. And in a film where there had been other funny bits, you might assume that that was meant to be a joke. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really not sure... It's an odd little moment of slapstick, isn't it? That seems yeah. to come out of nowhere. And it does remind... It did remind me of Jar Jar Binks and the, the things that George Lucas obviously... I can only... I, I think the but one... He has, he has a real tin ear for comedy yeah. for the most part. Yeah, I think that's what that is. Um, but, uh, THX is available to drive and he, he drives off. And there is... There's part of the car chase, unfortunately, is very obviously CG. Oh, it's, that's one that's, of the... That's one of the bits where it really doesn't work. Yeah. Whether he's, he's racing down a freeway with all kinds of other vehicles and he's weaving in and out of them and thought, no, this is... None of this is real. But it doesn't it fit doesn't with work. the tone... Because up to this point, the film has resisted obviously exciting bits. That, yeah. And it, it's just an example, again, of how these, these CGI yeah. bits get bolted on because they look nice, I guess. I don't really understand why they're there, except that, the, except that George presumably thinks they look good. But they don't fit with the film. Um, they don't fit with the tone or the mood or the, the particular sequence. Um, and again, I'm left with bits like the arrival at Mos Eisley in the special edition oh, of Star Wars, where... Uh, there's, that giant thick, there's that giant giraffe yeah. that walks straight in front of the camera. Mm. And completely blocks the everything. What's the point in that? Yeah, and then some. But, but then uh, there's a jower, and he gets his foot caught in some stirrups or something, and it's sort of pulled. And, yeah, and it's like this is not. You don't need a funny bit here. It's like going back into the whole. What I think that I think Rick McCallum says in one of these um, Phantom Menace, is, and the, the the screen is filled with with so much so much going on the whole time. So they, does there need to be? Yeah. Was well, you know all you're doing is showing how much money you're spending on the visual effects. You're not showing how this is benefiting the story, mm. how this is uh, making the world of the story more interesting, or how it's developing the characters. Yeah. If you do any of that, it's just stuff that's occurring. It's moving shapes on a screen. Yeah, yeah. you, might, you might as well just show something glittery. It's, it's meaningless. And it, again, it contrasts badly with the cinematography of some of the earlier sequences, where two-thirds of the frame will just be a wall. And then somebody will be over in the other third of the screen. Which film are you talking about now? THX. Right. Sorry. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Don't remember that Star Wars. No. No. Right, that's okay, right. No, but yeah. So, but yeah. Yeah. You're back to the very, very sort of Spartan cinematography of THX, and there will just be a wall, and then Robert Duvall will be over to one side, or he'll walk down a corridor. But again, that that will just be in the middle third of the screen, and the the outside edges will be filled. And then suddenly you've got these frames where there's just cars, cars, things, and, yeah. and you just. Some of these establishing shots do work. There's one of a sort of a pan across a huge lobby area where you see people walking around, there are lifts going up and down, there are buildings in the distance. That's mm. okay. I mean, it's sort of superfluous, but it fits with the tone. Yeah. There's, a, there's one very brief sequence in what appears to be a robot police station in a locker room where the robot police are getting dressed. Yeah. I... And as I mentioned to you earlier... Why would they ever not be dressed? They're robots. <laughs> and I didn't. I did. I missed this sequence. I don't know if my attention was elsewhere or. Um, it's been. It's only a few seconds. Yeah. But it makes it makes me think. Well, then it's even more pointless and irrelevant. Why yeah. even bother? I mean, 
are you trying to fill out the runtime? It's a sh- it's a short mm. movie. It's movies should be as long as they need to be. This movie is only an hour and twenty minutes. That's fine. Yeah. That means you can watch it late at night and not worry about oversleeping. Yeah, it's it's very very odd, and and it's the lack of care that some of these CGI sequences are bolted on. I mean, they're, I mean, the CGI, it's good CGI. They're very yeah. They're, yeah. The, the effects are good. They're just there's no thought given to them in context as a piece of the whole movie. Mm. Um, but there's an exciting. There is actually you know, it's, it's a relatively exciting car chase. Yes, yeah. Um, with THX and his stolen weird sports car pursued by robot police on bikes. There's a fantastic stunt. There is an amazing stunt that one of the cops is taken out by debris in the road. In fact, one in fact because all the we talk about the sound design so many times. The sound of the police bikes is this weird low droning sound. Mm. It was created by having women scream in a tiled bathroom. Wow, okay. And it sounds nothing like <laughs> no, that. It, but it's this, it's the, yeah, that's, a, that's like an eerie electronic motor engine type of noise. But no, it's from this very organic origin. Mm. Um, but if one of the, um, the, uh, the, 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 they go into all these tunnels and, the, and they go beyond the boundary of where the city is. The car hits some scaffolding. And there's a bit. There's a bit where one people working on the scaffolding. One of them dives through a tunnel. That's CGI. Yes. Yeah. But one of the bikes hits a piece of scaffolding. The rider flies off, almost hits the ceiling of the tunnel, and then crashes into THX's car. And then the bike falls on top of him. And the car shifts. He hits it so hard that the yeah. car shifts. I mean, it's it's an amazing stunt, and I can't quite work out why. Whenever sort of compilations of you know the greatest. Stunts that that should be in there because it's astonishing. I know, and um, again on the on the DVD, there's some more information about it that everyone was horrified. So the the crew, but most of the crew worked on them. They were student films, documentaries that never really made anything like this. They were horrified. They ran into the shop, got off to the to the to the act, got the helmet off, and he was looking up at them, absolutely furious, saying, "Why have you ruined the shot?" <laughs> <laughs> because the, apparently the rule is, if a stuntman is killed doing a stunt. You leave it in the movie, okay? Because that's... they want their work to be seen. Apparently, that's what I'm It could be wrong, mm. but think, well, again, it's a horror. It looks horrible. He was fine. Yeah, he's yeah. a stuntman. He knows how to do this sort of thing and not get hurt. But but it's really quite startling to see. Yeah, and it and again, it, it it works. Well, it works because it's a it's a brilliant piece of stunt work. But it also works because that's not how the film has been up to that point. Um, you know, the film has been very sort of slow and... Sterile. Con- yes, sterile. And then suddenly there's this incredible moment, yeah. And I, I, can, imag- I can almost imagine that that's the point where they said, yes, let, let's spend what money we've got. This is, this is a bit yeah. to spend money on. So the, the final part of the chase is on foot with a couple more of the robot cops after THX as he's climbing a ladder. That ladder is, in fact... Mm. Uh, along the ground yes yeah. life. it's part, part of, the, of the BART tunnel system because they haven't laid the sleepers yet for the train so they're sort of crawling along pulling on this uh, rebar embedded in the ground but it's a, it's a good example of how you can it doesn't look you can creatively solve problems yeah, in filmmaking because they just found all these great locations and it doesn't look like they're um, crawling along the ground mm. because they decide they film it at odd angles they I think one like there's an establishment of that which is filmed upside down. 
So it looks like they're climbing upwards. So it's as if you're looking down and they're climbing up sort of up the top of the screen. Yeah. Um, but the, the the chase ends when the police are recalled because they've gone over budget. They've run out of money. Yes. <laughs> Which they just, it is sort of it is laid down in sort of dialogue earlier that there is a budget for this yeah. chase. It's thirty-seven thousand units, I think it is, and that they can go up to five percent over that. But then they have to say, "Oh no, we've run out of money." Well, c- come back. <laughs> Actually, one of the policemen, does, and that's because the police are all very softly spoken, and they're always saying things like, "We are just here to help we you." We are your friends. Yes, do not run. We are your friends. Yes, um, and again, it very much the robot butlers from Sleeper. Um, yes, must, they look very much like yeah, it as well. Um, that must be the it must be the inspiration for um, so much of sleep. I'm sure it is. I mean, Woody Allen's never been um, too concerned about paying homage to them. Like mm. London Death is a very obvious knockoff yeah. of One Piece, so he's been quite happy to be very explicit in mocking things like that. Um, but also, I'd say Sleeper is also. There's a lot of two th- uh, there's some of two thousand. Yes. a lot of Clockwork yeah. Orange, I think, in there as well. Mm. Yeah, but I mean, what I like is that I, uh, what what I particularly like about Sleeper is that Woody Allen takes all these influences and turns it into a he builds something completely original on it. He turns it into a slapstick film, which is the one thing you wouldn't expect. You could uh, you can really see that in THX. You can imagine it working. I mean. If you can get hold of the DVD listener, I really recommend it because there's a lot of stuff on there that's really interesting. One option is watching the movie with just the music and sound effects, mm. um, and the, the 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 voiceover chatter. And I thought, wouldn't it be a great option? I think there's elements in there that don't quite work that are in there that aren't in there, so this doesn't quite work. To watch the movie with the music and the sound effects. But no spoken dialogue, and instead just subtitles. Mm. So you have all the atmospheric sound, and all the sort of the the audio uh, palette of the film, and you can understand the dialogue, but you never hear it spoken. So there's that extra disconnection between mm. people, because that's what the whole film is about. It's about forcing a disconnection between people by divorcing them from their emotions and people rebelling against that. So if they never audibly speak to each other, even though they, they clearly are talking to each other and you can read the subtitles, well, that would make another alternative yeah. way of watching the movie. And a great way, of course, of showing it to people in other languages because you just put in the foreign subtitles. Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, there's um, when I was reading up about this, there's it's got echoes of films like Fahrenheit 451, in it a little bit in that that's a kind of a you know that's a a world where people kind of drug themselves by watching enormous TVs and things don't they watch what you say about Fahrenheit 451 because it's my favourite oh I'm not going to say anything I'm not going to say anything (laughs) bad about it I know but tread carefully yes yeah well and I haven't seen it recently enough to um, to to, to really say much about but there's also a film by uh Jean-Luc Godard Alphaville Alphaville I knew yeah. you were going to say Alphaville yeah um, it's the I, other French science fiction film from the 60s but that's but this goes back to but there's there's bits of I'm not sure how original this goes back to what I was saying at the start I'm not sure how original THX is 
I think it's a grab bag of other uh, of, uh, other influences that, that as a good Californian film student in the late 60s, George Lucas will have watched. Mm. There's chunks of Star Trek in there. That sequence of the people in the corridor, there's an episode of Star Trek which is about overpopulation called The Mark of Gideon. There's definitely sort of accuracy, and that would have been shown in 1969. Right. There's another Star Trek episode... Uh, where two planets were at war and the computer decides who lives and who dies and, and the computer says, oh, you're a casualty in this war and people just march off to a disintegration booth. There's something about the way that people have given their lives over to this system willingly that, again, I think... And I, I think there's a lot of... There's a lot of stuff that is obviously just sort of in the atmosphere at the time that George Lucas has taken and has pulled together into this film. And obviously you've got... 1984 is kind of in there a little Brave bit. Brave New World. Yeah, Brave New World. It's it's a real sort of grab bag of influences. The novel uh, We as well, which is, uh, I believe, a Polish novel by an author who, uh, whose name I can't remember, unfortunately, which I think is the first to have the idea of people having serial numbers instead of names. Oh, right, OK, that makes... Yeah. But I think all of that then brings us to the final shot of the movie as the, the police go back down the, the ladder... And THX emerges, and we see this absolutely beautiful, spectacular final shot of THX standing on the surface of the Earth mm. with the gigantic sun setting behind him, and the music, the music of um, St Matthew's Passion by Bach swelling on the soundtrack. This absolutely, this this gigantic outpouring of emotion. This tremendous triumph of escaping from this enclosed world out onto the surface of the earth. And now I'm going to sound like a philistine because I sat there and went, "Oh, you're just going to stop by." <laughs> and the film—it's as if it's as if Francis Ford Cop- uh, Coppola or the, you know, there's somebody behind the camera has gone, "You're six percent over budget." <laughs> the film just ends; it just stops. And, and actually, it's a ver- to be fair, it's a very effective way of because what's he going to do exactly? The novelisation does actually add a slight additional element to that, where THX wanders away and he finds a little sort of community um, of other people yeah. wearing tattered white pyjamas who've also escaped. So if there is, there's other people there. Because at first, all we see in that final shot is a, a man in silhouette standing in a small area of landscape. We don't know if hmm. there's... Why, I mean, we never know why people why this civilization exists. One of my favorite things that I like to think about it is how long have they been there? Yes, yeah. I like to think that it's thousands of years. Yeah. Even that maybe this movie is like a distant sequel to Doctor Strangelove. This is what happened to all the people who went down into the tunnel. Yeah. 10,000 years later, THX escaped. But we know that life is possible on the surface because a bird flies by. Oh, I, did, I missed that, actually. It's I just, it just happened. Yeah, so yeah. They, they, there's obviously nothing they can do about it. I was kind of... Because... I'm assuming, given that the sun sets fairly quickly, so presumably they must have speeded the shot up. Nope, that's oh, is it a real shot? Okay, with a very long lens. Because I was just sitting there looking at the actor standing there, thinking, "How long did they get that poor?" And I, I having seven. having said earlier that I'm one of these people that leaves the cinema during the closing titles, I sat there and watched the closing titles because I go, "That poor man, they made him stand there for hours as the sun well, sets." It's actually it brings it nice in a in a in a circle. It's not Robert Duvall. Um, because it was a second unit shot. It's actually mm. Matthew Robbins who wrote the, the original story for THX mm. uh, when it was called Breakout. 
uh, to has himself become a successful writer and director. Most recently, co-writing Crimson Peak, oh, yeah, Game okay. of Toro. Um, and with that final image, it also made me think of the last words of J.M.W. Turner. Okay, I'm going to be a philistine again. The sun is God. Yeah, I mean it's because it certainly isn't that picture of Jesus they have. No, no. Well, I think THX is George Lucas's finest achievement. I rank it above Star Wars. It's, I think, a a complete vision of a world. It's a very intelligent film. It's beautifully made. It hasn't dated in the slightest. Mm. Even his CGI tinkering no, it couldn't, didn't hurt it. No. In fact, it's helped it because it's, 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 it now looks the way it looked in Lucas's head. Yeah, it's very. I mean, it's it's a very clever film in the way that it uses technology because fundamentally it doesn't. Um, and so there's nothing really there to date it. Nobody loads video cassettes into anything or starts listening to vinyl. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but all the things that sometimes happen in other films where you watch and go, oh, there's a nice bit. I think it's in the White Void, isn't it, where. Robert Duvall has got this kind of black box and he's running it over his head and his face and you realise that, that it's some kind of hair trimmer or something. Mm. So yeah, it, ha- it definitely hasn't dated, which kind of surprised me because something as good as 2001, is it Pan Am? That they, or Tee yeah, Tee it's Pan Am, which and, no longer exists. Yeah. But because, th- because THX keeps everything abstract mm. with these you know, magic hair trimmers with these paper dodecahedrons yes. that people want to buy it hasn't aged and the irony is that you can't get it on DVD but you can get it on digital which is <laughs> the most recent format so it's keeping pace with the times mm. today thanks very much to Chris Arnsby for making the time to record this podcast if you have any questions or comments feel free to direct them to at cinema underscore limbo at twitter or if you have any questions or comments for me personally, it's at J underscore J underscore Phillips with two L's. However, until next time, remember, buy, buy more, and be happy. You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, edited by Martin Fenton, with music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcast Network. Come and visit us at www.podnose.com.